The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is John Etherton. John is the president of Etherton & Associates and. Um, it's that time of year again. We're getting down to the wire with the NDAA and all kinds of other wonderful things on the Hill. And, and John, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Roger. It's great to be back. Uh, well, um, let's just, um, I guess, you know, do some table setting first um, and talk about where we are in the process and what the next steps are and just generally what you see going on on the Hill. Okay. Thanks, Roger. Um, well, we can talk about the uh, the giant elephant in the room, I guess, at some point. Uh, as far you mean as the I word, the I word, oh, okay. right? Yeah. But but before we get there, let's talk about sort of what current uh, processes as far as acquisition policy on the Hill uh, might be in play. Um, as most of the listeners know, the Congress is in recess until October the fifteenth. Um, they what there was a CR con- uh, continuing resolution that was enacted. A very basic document to keep funding flowing until November 21st. Uh, at that point, we re- we will either need an extension or we will need a larger deal on the uh, appropriations bills. Uh, the FY20 National Defense Authorization Act conference between the House and Senate uh, started in late July. Uh, the staffs did meet uh, unusually, at least in my experience when I was on the committee. They actually did meet over the recess and did make a lot of progress uh, working through a lot of the issues. Um, and the Big Four started meeting about mid-September, uh, which the Big Four being the chairman and ranking member of the House and Senate Armed Services Committees. They were working through a lot, a number of uh, difficult issues, some of which are quite fraught politically. There was a hope at one point that they would finish the process by October 1st. That did not happen. Um, now I'm expecting this is going to probably go for another month or two. Uh, we might see some resolution of the, these bigger issues maybe in December, although I tend to think that these things are not going to be coupled with the appropriations process where a lot of the same issues are in play. Uh, the, the appropriations process really uh, moved pretty briskly in the House, but in the Senate they didn't do anything until um, – uh, they got a larger deal at the end of July on the Budget Control Act and raising the the uh, caps on the discretionary spending for the defense and non-defense accounts. They did that. Uh, there was some hope that after that point, when the Appropriations Committee would mark up their bills in committee uh, in the Senate, that they would bring those bills to the floor and start catching up to the House. Uh, that did not happen. Uh, again, some of the political issues like the wall funding and restoring some of the military construction accounts that were uh, where the money was used to pay for wall construction, uh, divided people enough that they couldn't bring the bills up. But the Senate Appropriations Committee has actually finished uh, 10 of the 12 bills, and so the reports are out there, and you can see what those tables are. So again, I think they're in a position uh, to at least get the tables lined up and do the conference on the money. And again, working out some of these larger policy issues, I think, will take longer. Uh, but then we'll uh, hopefully by the end of the calendar year uh, this year, I think we should have the basis for being finished with it all, all of it. 
Right. So is it just, I mean, is, is it typical, I guess, in a negotiation, they put the harder issues off to the very end when the pressure is, yeah, is at its maximum? Yes. Or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in this case, it's a little bit moving back to the authorization process. Keep in mind, you've got two new chairs of the House and Senate Armed Services Committee this year, and yes. you have a change in the majority um, party uh, in the House. So um, you have a lot of new staff and a new member, new chair. Um, and there is, even with people with lots of experience who may, for example, have worked in the minority and then suddenly found themselves with the responsibilities of being on the majority side, um, that is a big difference. Uh, I've worked both sides on the Armed Services Committee and it's a lot harder to be in the majority. It's better if you <laughs> have a choice. Uh, but the responsibility for running the process, uh, managing the issues, structuring the conversations really falls on the staff. And the first year, it's, it's a difficult process. And so the first year, it's going to take a little bit longer for people to get their sea legs. And I think that also is a factor uh, in, in this. But yes, they started out uh, at the staff level. Normally, the staffs are given the authority to negotiate about 90% of the conference issues. Uh, then the process, that, that w- the way it works now is those issues that the staff, at the staff to staff level cannot be worked out. Um, they have a certain deadline that they have to meet. And if they don't meet the issue resolution by the deadline, then the issues go to what they call the little four, which would be the staff directors, a majority minority on both committees. And they get a chance to try to resolve the issues. And then they winter the issues down a little bit. And then whatever is left uh, are the big member issues, and and that's what's and I think in this case we're probably looking at somewhere between fifteen and twenty major issues where the uh, the members themselves or the the uh, chairman and ranking on the committees are going to have to resolve the issues. Uh, so there, that's where we are at the process. So what now. issues would those be? Wall funding. We have the wall funding. You have uh, the transgender policy in, for people in the military. You have the. Uh, uh, Authority to use force against Iran. Authority of U.S. involvement in the Yemen conflict is another issue. Uh, also, the House has taken issue with the small nuclear weapons, uh, new development, new acquisition program. They've got some problems with that. Uh, so those are that's an example of, of some of the issues. And, and keep in mind, on the House side, that the authorization bill, which normally is a bipartisan bill, passes overwhelmingly this year. Uh, because of the lower numbers that the bill was marked up to uh, because they didn't have a BCA deal, the Republicans took objection just as a party to the content of that bill. And so the only way that they could pass the bill on the House side was with 100 percent Democratic votes, which is normally what they don't have to have. They can usually have enough on both sides. In order to get all of the Democratic votes they needed, they took – a lot of the language uh, that were amendments that were offered on the floor, which you know was a reflection of more of a progressive agenda, yeah. uh, and that then carries into conference and makes the resolution of those issues I think more challenging. Right, um, and a lot of these issues, if I understand correctly, too, they're <clears throat> they're in the NDAA, but they're also you got them like two sort of stereos going at once, right? Because they're going to have to be resolved in the appropriation, in the appropriations process. bill. That's right. With whether it's the Homeland Security issue on the wall level of wall funding or the the reimbursement back into the 127 military construction accounts where the money was taken from in order to fund the wall in FY19. So they you know there's those issues are out there front and center and there are other policy issues 
that are uh, also in the in the appropriations bill and the general provisions. So it, it will take a more of a to use one of a better word an omnibus solution. Uh, to those issues that will be reflected in both bills, and I think that's what I was going to ask you next. Yeah. Can you can you end up resi- you know people working it out on you know in the NDA conference, but not you know, but in the, they've all got to be kind of be on the same page, right? They you do. Think, right? They do. There is one. There have been cases in the past where you've had differences between an appropriation solution, say on a program funding, and what was authorized in a an authorization bill. And whether that's one is binding on the other or one cancels out the other, the general interpretation has been whichever bill gets signed last uh, is the one that has the the final say or is dispositive as to the final outcome. There was one example uh, back in 2013, I believe it was, when we had a difference of outcomes in the Budget Control Act amendments, and it had to do with the executive compensation cap on allowable costs on, on defense contracts. And the cap in the BCA bill was lower than the one that had been authorized in the defense authorization bill. And there was a very deliberate effort on the part of the administration in 2013 to sign the BCA bill after the defense authorization bill, even though the defense authorization bill had been submitted you know, a day earlier. Uh, so that that's one of those cases where you can have – I think these issues that we're looking at now are of such great political import – that they're going to have to find a solution in the, for the most of them that will be consistent in both bills, that they won't have yeah. a, you know, a solution in one and try to game out which bill gets signed second or anything like that. The president has also said that he will not sign another omnibus appropriations bill. In other words, a bill that incorporates all 12, uh, either 12 new appropriations or continuing resolution for the, for the fiscal year. And so they were, they're going to have to break them up and do them as smaller packages uh, to accommodate that concern. And so that will further complicate, I think, some of the some From of the a issues. tactical perspective, why would you do that? Well, if the president said that there's too many things, he doesn't want an all-or-nothing signature. So they want the ability at the White House to examine. Pick and choose a little bit? Well, examine the bills individually or mm-hmm. the packages individually. Uh, it takes, I, I think, less of a um, incentive away for, for folks to load up a bill if they're dealing with the totality, to say, well, the totality is good, but we have these, you know, these objectionable provisions in there. I think when you break them up, then you lessen the ability to do those kinds of trade-offs across all the appropriations bills. And so I think they're going to have to do them as separate packages. I do not think under any circumstance they will pass individual appropriations bills. I think they'll cluster two, three, or four of them in different groups. Different groups. Yeah, yeah. different groups to send them. But it just it trade, it, it narrows the trade space that would allow for what some people regard as mischief to occur in some of the provisions. So, I see, yeah. Okay. So, so that, that's, that, that's the way. But I think one of the challenges they're going to have in, in sort of working this out is, uh, is getting a sense of what the White House will find acceptable, what they will sign, and how that gets represented in the negotiation. And honestly, I think in some ways that may be a more acute issue for the uh, authorization committee for that conference because of some of the things that were added on the House floor. I think it's going to be a little more of a challenge. For the them. more progressive. More pro- yes, I think uh, that'll be more of a challenge. Well, John, we're up on the break. Um, when we come back, maybe I'll ask you about the I word and what, what it means for the, the process, just generally. Uh, my guest today is John Etherton from Etherton & Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the 
Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is John Etherton from Etherton Associates. And we're talking, you know, the congressional process, what's going on on the Hill right now with the NDAA and the appropriations uh, bills. Um, and um, one of the things that's hanging over all of this right now um, is impeachment and just the, that process. And what is John, as someone who worked up there for 18 years, what does what and has been around it for even much longer than that? But what what does this? How does this impact things? How does this impact uh, the the standard workings of government here? Well, I think there, Roger. First answer is not. We don't know. Okay, that's number one. I think there's some ways to think about it, though. Um, as I'm looking at this. Um, and especially in the specific dynamics of the bills that are underway and the, the processes that I mentioned in the last segment. First of all, uh, the timing of whatever process that gets moving is going to be critical. If, in fact, we see the House, if they decide to proceed with articles of impeachment, um, when does that happen? Does it happen before the end of the year? Does it happen early next year? And and, and how does that align with these processes that are already underway? I think if everybody had their brothers or whatever, they would like to see the uh, both the authorization and appropriations processes wrap up before the end of the year because that would give the ability, now that we have these BCA cap agreements into next year, the ability to, to sort of reset the process and proceed more or less on time as far as with the budget requests and things like that. Uh, however, if, the, if, there are, if there is a decision made based on whatever evidence is out there to proceed with articles of impeachment, and that happens before the end of the year, then I it's hard to see, you know, how that doesn't suck all the energy and air out of the process to, to as people focus on that. But the other issue that I'm also looking at is there are some issues that are clearly breaking along political lines that are the big issues that will determine the pace of the process. And how much does this back and forth, the counterpoint between the impeachment process such as it may turn into – and these other issues where, you know, that, you know, people start looking politically at these things and how much more uh, willing are people to negotiate, how much, you know, where do people see their advantages or disadvantages? I think that's where, you know, so I think it's going to be the twofold issue, the thing of number one, whether we have what the interplay is and then the timing in terms of the timing of that process in relationship to the timing of what people hope to finish up with this, with these things that I right. mentioned so, in the budget. Yeah. So and so if if it does the, the impeachment process begins before the end of the you know calendar year, then these things would just be put aside. I don't or? know that they would be put aside, but it would really have an impact on how much time and attention. Because my experience with the authorization process, for example, is that as folks are r- trying to wrap it up, I mean, you yeah. get down to the last. 10 issues or 15 or whatever it might be. And it's then everybody sort of has a sense of we, we really want to get this wrapped up. So there's a there's an intensive period of negotiation, an intensive period of drafting of different approaches, trading off different, you know, things from different lists and all that sort of thing. And so it really does, you know, it's not only at the staff level, but at this point you've got to, and it's especially challenging for the Senate because you have, you know, fewer senators and they've, tend to have more committee responsibilities is to give it, getting them the material and the way, the way that they're able to focus and negotiate. Uh, so that takes a lot of time and attention. 
And will people have the time and attention that they, you know, in the midst of a process like impeachment, uh, where there may be an impending trial or something else coming up, uh, to to really focus on this and negotiate? And and what and again, what does that do to the dynamic between the House and Senate negotiators as they're trying to figure these things out, and the yeah. White House too? That they're yeah. in the mix as well. So I don't know. Right. I, I think we, we. It seems like at least today, this week, next week, whatever. We're going to see daily changes and developments and right. things that, yeah. that will, you know, drive that process or slow it down or whatever. Right. So, well, then let's turn to the NDA itself and just can you, you know, I know you recapped a fair amount in the first segment, but just the the status of the NDAA moving forward, and then we can talk a little bit about, you know, how we got to, you know, how we got to where we are today, and then with it, and then some of the key areas that. Um, you should, we'd li- you'd like to highlight for the folks out there. Sure. Well, I, I'll just quickly summarize. I, again, I think the a uh, lot of the conversations in this year's NDAA, um, there was a very robust uh, discussion around several of the perennial acquisition policy issues reflected not only in Title Eight but also in a couple of the other titles, especially, for example, in the Senate bill in Title 16, where they were looking at cybersecurity and supply chain security. Um, I would interpret this year as more c- continuity with last year and the f- earlier years rather than a break and sort of new and bold uh, approaches. I think the other thing that I would I see in the bill is a lot of what the committees consider, which I consider to be more foundational kinds of issues, really were the outcomes of things like the Defense Innovation Board process, the Section 813 panel that looked at intellectual property um, and some other reports and things that have come sort of ripened and provided, you know, uh, approach and direction. Um, not so much, you know, sort of these new and bold kind of proposals that uh, sort of came out strictly from the uh, the chairman of the committees or, you know, from other work that they've done within the committee itself, like breaking up USDA, TNL, and yes, DOD, yeah, yeah. that sort of thing. So. Um, so the, so it's a, it's a little bit of a shift. As I mentioned earlier, you've got two new chairmen, uh, and some, several staff are new or are coming at this from a different perspective as majority versus minority staff. And so th- there's a little bit of a shakedown kind of uh, uh, aspect, I think, to this process this year. But but nonetheless, there's a, fairly, a very large volume of provisions uh, dealing with a large number of different areas. And, uh, uh, in fact, I think in the House, in the Title Eight. Section, they had 82 provisions that I counted, which I think is the largest Title VIII that I've ever seen come out of a House committee uh, bill. Uh, so there's still quite a bit of things that they wanted to take up, and and they and they address a lot of different issues in different right. areas. Well, you know, one of the issues. Well, right now we're going through, you know, the implementation of Section 889. You know, with regard to you know buy you know the prohibitions on buying and or utilizing networks from the with regard to certain Chinese companies. Mm-hmm. So uh, that to me, that's the one of the first areas that come to mind is right. well, what's going on in supply chain risk in, in, the, in the NDAA. Well, there's been a very interesting development in supply chain risk that I think anybody would see if, if you look at the issues at all closely. And that is in the past, our supply chain risk has generally been characterized in, in a, as an access issue. You know, do we have access to technology? Do we have access to raw materials or process materials for our defense? Uh, because, you know, are we too dependent on foreign sources and that sort of thing? 
And there's still there's quite a bit of language in the in these bills, sort of looking at that issue and addressing it for various things, uh, from manufactured items to other other kinds of things. Uh, so there's more of that traditional take. But now we are starting to look at the cyber, and not starting. This has really been we've been looking at this now for quite a while. But the idea of cyber as a as another area where uh, network penetrations, uh, placing of malware in components, you know that sort of thing. Uh, how do we prevent you know those kinds of things from happening? The language in 889 last year you know, was a real clear step in that direction. Uh, there's language this year uh, in both bills which sort of picks up that theme and, and carries it forward as, you know, how do we ensure that we've got integrity in our supply chain, that we don't have compromised systems because of some of these things that could be done, whether it's the software or in the chip chips themselves or whatever. Um, and, and again, I, are they, are those potential length? Is it, is it, is it about process or compliance or does it, also, like naming names. Well, I, I think I'll give you a couple of examples. One, uh, there was a real concern over the summer about unmanned aerial systems uh, coming from foreign sources where there's a big commercial market. Uh, companies from China have, have cornered parts of that, or at least are the major, overwhelmingly major suppliers uh, in the commercial marketplace. And, and some of those technologies and systems were being acquired and modified for use by the U.S. Uh, for uh, overseas for operational use and that sort of thing. So we see now a prohibition, a flat prohibition on the purchase of those systems or even their operational use over the concerns about the, uh, um, you know, the potential for malware and and that sort of thing. Or, or uh, so you know that um, it's interesting because uh, in addition to that language, there's also language saying we need to look at figuring out ways to support the uh, domestic manufacturing capabilities. Right. Uh, and, and and it raises some issues on transition. If you're coming out with a flat prohibition on operational use, well, that's nice idea, but, you know, you have things in the field and people need them and they've, they built their operations around them. How do you transition some of these systems, you know, into a different model? I don't think that the language addresses that quite as well. So I think we're going to have to work. So that's one example. Right, and, right and, and we're already up on the break, okay. John, John. So when we come back, we'll finish up on that uh, supply chain risk. Also, since you mentioned 813, I want to ask you about you know intellectual property allocation of rights and that sort of thing, what, what, if there's interesting stuff in that, right? and just agile development as well. Okay. My guest today is John Etherton of Etherton Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guest today is John Etherton of Etherton Associates, and we're talking uh, right now about the NDAA. Um, and, John, when we took the break, we were talking about the, some of the so overarching supply chain risk themes and provisions and you know, the potential NDAA coming up, and you had an example you were going to – Lee, well, I mentioned that I, I, I so rudely interrupt you because we had to take our break. But okay. um, we, I mentioned the uh, unmanned aerial systems uh, prohibitions that were included as one sort of aspect of this. I think another aspect is there's language in Title 16 of the bill, which basically directs the department to work with industry 
uh, on dealing with issues on uh, penetration and you know securing the supply chain networks, uh, both of the prime contractors and the subcontractors, uh, they set requirements in there for a very deliberate process based, based clearly on a, one of dialogue as to how this is, it would all work. And then there's additional language in Title 16, which also provides for direct requirements that contractors provide DOD access uh, to their networks in the event of penetration to do forensic uh, work, which is more controversial. I think there's some concerns on the industry side as, as far as a blanket authorization and whether there should be a little more granularity in terms of what is allowed and what isn't uh, required uh, under this. And so there, there's some discussion around that. But I think that's that. But I, the sense I get is that we're still we've identified some threats. We've identified some approaches to the threats in some cases. In other cases, I think we're still trying to find our way along, not only to understand how to properly characterize the threats that might exist on the networks, but also the, the what's the right approach that doesn't um, too much to too great an extent disrupt the ability of the defense department to get systems and capabilities in a timely fashion and for you know something that isn't too costly so i i think the language as i said in the senate uh, title 16 i see as a reflection of there's still some unknowns that won't be uh, brought forth until we have this dialogue and discussion and we get the sides working together to try to figure out what to do yeah well isn't i mean i just it might be stating the obvious and you can beat me over the head if I am, but it's, it, it seems to me all this that's happened and is happening in terms of legislation is, is about changing the supply chain, isn't it, or like moving it, or isn't that I think potentially it could be in a, we could be in a position where we're sort of, at least some aspects of it, uh, is the sort of deglobalizing it, you know, in a way of being, you know, really being more in, intentional about ensuring assured sources, maybe more on the domestic source side. That's certainly been a preoccupation for the White House. Uh, and I think what you're seeing is, is congressional support for, you know, at least, you know, moving in that direction. Now, I would suspect if the costs of that are clearer and they look to be very high, then there may be some rethinking about what the market will bear. But I think we're definitely moving in that direction. Now. Yeah. So – Next topic was uh, is data rights, and you did mention uh, Section eight thirteen and its report, and you know what's in the bill. You know, is there stuff from from the report, and where are they going in that area? There's two two issues in the bill that I think are interesting, and and one of them, the source is the eight thirteen report. Another uh, is a, a DOD concern about proprietary markings and validation and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate and, and you know, in an event that they feel like they really need to be able to use uh, data where there's a dispute. Um, on the, the 813 panel, one of their legislative recommendations was that the uh, department have a pilot program be, or be given authority for a pilot program to test this idea that they would use valuation techniques for data, intellectual property, over the life of a program um, so that uh, the department and the industry wouldn't be in a, just in a sort of what we seem to be in a continuing fight over government purpose rights versus you know more uh, limited rights for uh, intellectual property that industry views as was developed at private expense. This would be, be an alternative. It would basically say, look, if we can figure this out and we can use these uh, techniques, what we could do is actually price the cost of the intellectual property 
into the bid or, the, or make it a, something that, that folks would look at. And therefore, we would pay a fair price to the companies for the intellectual property that would allow the government then to have more options on sustainment. Yeah, uh, and using the data. They right? could yeah. use the data. They could compete some of the work or the, you know, the parts and whatever, but they would reimburse the company a fair price for it. I, I think it's 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 got a lot of merit as something to, to to be looking at. It's an area on the 813 panel where there was no disagreement on the concept between in, the industry members and the government people. So they all were on a consensus around this. Um, it does provide this alternative to the eternal fight we seem to have over government purpose rights, which then gives the government the ability to use it for competition in limited cases, the data, uh, which the industry objects to. So we, we break out of that, um, and it would f- it sort of force the government, I think, a little bit more in the mode of figuring out what its needs are for longer periods of time as the tools become available for that. But it, there's some controversy around it, and, and I think the challenge will be to take a model that's based on a commercial approach where you have products in the marketplace for much shorter periods of time than they may be in service in the department. So instead of a five-year period, you may be looking at 30 years. And, and are those techniques scalable in a way yeah. that you can actually use them? I think that's an unanswered question. But there is actual pro, uh, pilot in both bills, uh, so that's not. There will be something coming out of conference on this. There are some minor differences between the two, uh, but that's an area that I think. And DoD has made a lot of sort of doing sustainment, getting in the Air Force case. Uh, Dr. Roper has talked about having the. Um, industry out of the sustainment business entirely. They, he wants to see them go back into development, and that's a whole different topic we could talk about. But um, So there's a lot of interest in the department on this, uh, a lot of interest in a more flexible and creative approach on intellectual property that I, I really think next year is going to be a big issue uh, in the conversation, even in the authorization bill. So All right. So um, we have about a minute left in this segment, John, and m- – one of the things that we could start talking about, I know, because you're, you're really fired up about some of the software acquisition provisions and, you know, the pathways and how how, how the flexibilities that, that are potentially being proposed here. Um, do you want to start and then we take sure. a break? And Yeah, I think that uh, indicative of this idea that we need to have a faster acquisition process and we need to look more at the nature of what we're buying and design processes around that and the fact that software is the resonant, that's where the capability resides in so many systems now, uh, as much as the hardware. Um, there's been a real desire in the part of the department and, and many in industry to have a rapid uh, acquisition pathway for software uh, development and acquisition. The Defense Innovation Board did a study which uh, completed in March uh, the Software Acquisition and Practices Group, the so-called Dib Swap Group, and they came up with a uh, an actual legislative proposal, uh, which was in, massaged a little bit, but it was ad- adopted in both bills again uh, to try to move this along. I think in general, my take for my conversations with my clients is that in general, industry is very supportive of this. Uh, there's a little bit of concern about certain little elements of it, but not anything that I would yeah. consider major. So, right. And John, we're, we're up on the break. Maybe okay. you can... So, you know, what are some of the key features of this okay. proposal when we come back? Because it is interesting stuff, you know, and trying to get more agile, right? right. Uh, my guest today is John Etherton of the of Etherton and Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part 
the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is John Etherton of Etherton Associates. And John, um, you you were and when we took the at the end of the last segment, you were talking about you know software acquisition and you know some agile sort of development uh, approaches that are in the bill. Can you tell tell a little bit about exactly what from a sort of implementation perspective um, you know these the, the the language may may provide for sure I think there are a couple of important points one is it's a very quick process so they're looking for things that can be done in a year uh, the language would cover not only software embedded software for systems that the department may be buying that are DoD unique systems but also commercial software that may be applicable to a defense business system uh, so that you've got both sides of this. Um, there's some real uh, limitations on how much oversight, I guess, and how this process would embed in the larger DOD oversight process. There is uh, some limitations on the type of contracts that could be used, contract type. And again, this is all based on lessons learned uh, from the the analysis that the uh, Dib Swap Group did. Um, so there's, a, there's, you know, it's it's based on real issues. And one of the features of the dip swap approach uh, was they did involve a lot of the industry people in the conversation. So this was not a, a government unique group of people that just came up with some different ideas, which is one of the reasons I think so many in industry see it as a as a fairly balanced, positive uh, approach. Um, I, and that, so that's sort of another issue. The 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 challenge I think with this is that. Um, you've got color of money issues in the in the deal on the DOD yes. side, which which the dip swap group had recommended sort of a no color money kind of fund to to do this, and and it, that part of it really didn't get much uh, support in either House or Senate bill. Um, I think it, it's really part of a bigger problem I see in some of these rapid acquisition models is that money does have a color and it's available for certain uses for certain periods of time in a in embedded in a in a uh, palm you know the 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 program pro- programming process that has certain milestones and times when you can do things and if you yeah. miss that deadline then you're you have some limited options as you go down the road until you get to reprogramming which is really the final option and so um what i think is going to be a challenge with not only the software acquisition model that they've got. And and I would just also say... Parent- so what you're telling me is they need not only agile development, they need agile funding. Agile funding, right. right. That, that everybody agrees, all of the stakeholders, OMB, the appropriations committees, the DOD controller's office, all of these folks have a sense that, you know, there's enough controls and and they're, they're on board with it because all it will take is one of the groups to say no and you won't get anywhere with it. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, I think this is a bigger issue. It's not only with the software acquisition pathway, but I think for the so-called 804 middle tier of acquisition where rapid acquisition is really the primary consideration, um, you have a case in, in some of these where eventually you hope to migrate them into the normal major defense acquisition or major capability acquisition pathway, which involves a lot of documentation and a lot of certifications and a lot of uh, uh, reporting and things like that to the Hill, um, and how you coordinate all these different things to get some scalable, really big-time, 
meaningful capabilities uh, at the end and, and preserve this rapid idea that you get it into the hands of the warfighter quickly. I think it's going to be quite a challenge. And I think a lot of this, including the software acquisition pathway language, whatever results from this conference, I think is going to be a, sort of a living document. I think as people experiment with it and we get further uh, information and further understanding of what the impacts and how the incentives work and things like that, I would not be surprised to see this authority amended every single year, maybe for a three or four year period until people really think they've captured it and satisfied all the different stakeholder communities in the Congress and in the, in uh, the executive branch before they can, you know, as they move forward. But I do think they'll, they will really try to move this. And given the nature of the adversaries or potential adversaries that we face, uh, compared to what things were like in the Cold War, I think we have to do this. We can't, yes. go, we can't uh-huh. go back to the old system, and we have to be willing, I think, to challenge some of the underlying uh, foundations, both on the budget side and on the acquisition authority side, to move forward. I just There's just no choice, in my opinion. Yeah. So, well, with on that note, I know there's some other sort of streamlining, you know, I guess you give and take away and both, or <laughs> to your mixed uh, messages or conflicting thoughts can you in the in the in the NDAAs can you talk a little bit on other aspects of streamlining yeah there are a couple of other things that i think are interesting in this bill um in the i think it was in the FY16 or 17 NDAA uh mainly coming from the senate uh, the the 804 authorities uh, were basically a feature of the 1516 bills and they really provide for this sort of very rapid cut through the bureaucracy approach to move, start moving things. You get out from underneath the uh, joint capability uh, assessment process and the JROC and some of the other processes of oversight over in the department, and it gives you the ability to kind of move things very quickly with the idea that within a five-year period you will have either failed, which, you know, this would be something that would be relatively limited in terms of your investment. So you might have a failure and you might find out something doesn't work and you do it relatively quickly and you don't bet a whole system on it, or you get into something where you do have a te- uh, you know, development and it goes well, and you can actually move something forward. Um, th- what I see in the, some of the provisions this year, especially coming out of the House, is a little bit of sort of a second thoughts about that. Um, there's some there was langu- language included in one of the earlier bills the last couple of years that basically gave the Secretary of Defense the right to waive any law. Essentially, yes, I remember uh, that. Yep. You know, in order to pursue an acquisition outcome, that authority was re- would be repealed if the language in the House bill uh, prevails. They also put some limitations on the use of 804, so that the department isn't in a position to start buying a major system, uh, building it through an 804 process without a, a requisite oversight. Uh, which I think uh, the department is going to chafe a little bit under that, and I know that they've raised some concerns about the original version of the language. But I think it's sort of like, yeah, go out and do all these things, but maybe not not entirely. You know, we, we still want to make sure we're not – things aren't going to go off the rails or we're not going to have a big uh, oversight issue or something like that coming at us down the road. And um, so I, it's going to be interesting to see how those issues get resolved and what agreements are worked out between the authorizing and to some extent the appropriations committees and the folks in the Department of Defense who are really trying to push the envelope on speed, uh, at maybe even at the expense of cost and and right. and some sense of performance, uh, to try to really have a different migrate this to a different process than what we have now. Yeah, so so you know these the streamlining the software acquisition supply chain all that stuff, all these things you know, 
you, you to me comes back to thinking about near peer adversaries, um, and just overarching looking at where NDAA is going and the and the appropriations. Are we is the shift going fast enough to move towards addressing whether it's the Pacific or you know Asian theater or whatever you want to call it um, that near peer adversary. I would say it's probably not going fast enough, um, given you know the challenges that we're facing, the technology challenges. Um, it's it's going to be partly a function of funding and investment. That'll be part of it. But I also think it, it will be some of these abilities to kind of move things and get everybody in a place where they can accept the outcomes um, and know up front what those outcomes might be. And I, I'll go back to an example. When we did the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act legislation in 1994, one of the things that the staff, and I know I did this with the members on the committee that I was working with, is to sit down everybody and say, look, this isn't going to work perfectly at the beginning. We're going to have mistakes. We're going to have things that some people might want to build into a scandal narrative. Uh, the, you know, The price you pay maybe on the on a cost side or some other side will be some problems. But you you have to understand this is going to take a five year period to fully implement and and to really understand what we're what we've changed and to some extent everybody's got to agree that we're going to weather all these things together and we'll you know we'll make changes and make adjustments as we go forward but we all recognize that we're going to get hit with these stories and other kinds of things which are you know fine for folks to do that but um, and, and prepare people for that for the political cost that might be associated with going the full distance. And I'm hoping those conversations are still uh, ongoing on the Hill, that people aren't, you know, afraid. And the first time we have some kind of a big problem, people don't go running, you know, and, and want to change everything back because I don't think we can afford it. I, right. I think that the equilibrium that the system was in in the prior – under the prior rules needs to be broken and we need to hit a new equilibrium yeah. that works things much faster and, and, and accepts and tolerates much greater risk especially at the front end for a lot of these things that folks want to do. Right. Well, John, you know, on that note, we have to end the show. Uh, I want to thank my guest today, John Etherton of Etherton Associates. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. 
And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.